So our sermon text this morning speaks to men. Old men and young men. I'm going to have to leave that up to you to figure out which one you are. Whether you're an old man or a young man. But uh, let me see if I can help. You know you're an older man if... You engage the server in conversation at the restaurant, and especially if you ask his or her name. Telltale sign. And yes, I do it all the time. You know you're an older man if your favorite outfit involves a Hawaiian shirt. And if you bought your pants at Costco. You know you're an older man when you find yourself telling dad jokes without even thinking. They just come out. It becomes second nature. And you're definitely an old man if every time you cough or sneeze, your exhaust pipe backfires. I remember distinctly The day, the moment that I crossed over from being a younger man to definitely an older man. Because there I stood in line at Staples. And I was about three people back. And I noticed that the cashier kept looking at me. She was young and attractive. And she kept smiling at me. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself. I'm like. Yeah, all right. This is this is great. I work my way up into the line, and I, when I get up there, I say, "How you doing?" And she looks at me with that same smile and says, "You look just like my dad." <laughs> Balloon popped. So our sermon text really isn't primarily about old men or young men, our sermon text is about Christian men living out the faith in a Cretan culture. Christian men living out the faith in a Cretan culture. A Cretan culture. Well, if you've been with us for our study of Paul's letter to Titus, who was assigned to the island of Crete, that'll make sense to you. Open your Bibles, please, to the little letter of Titus. If you're using the black Bibles on the floor near you, it's long about page 998. Titus chapter 2, Paul is giving Titus some instructions about how the church as a whole a whole community, and each individual kind of men, uh, of member. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, bond servants. How the church as a whole community and each kind of member is to live out the faith so that the gospel of Christ will be displayed in their location. On the island of Crete. And that's sort of one of the keys to understanding this text that we're about to read. 
Titus chapter 2, when it gives instructions to older men, younger men, older women, younger women, it's not a comprehensive description of how Christians are supposed to live out the faith. But what Paul does is he highlights the characteristics that make Christians distinct within the Cretan Cretan culture. And we've gotten a sketch of the Cretan culture. It's a culture of self-indulgence. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, quote, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, says the Apostle Paul. So the, the Cretans were prolific liars, they were evil beasts, and they were lazy gluttons. That's a culture of self-indulgence, isn't it? I'm afraid that we live in much the same culture, don't we? I mean, expressive individualism. You be you. We exercise our individual freedoms to pursue our individual happiness and self-expression any way we want to live. Sexual immorality and pornography plagues our society. Laziness, obesity, substance abuse. So men, and that includes me, My prayer is that God will transform us through the gospel of Christ so that we live as Christian men in our Cretan culture. You're looking at Titus chapter 2. Our sermon text this morning is only verse 2 and then 6 through 8. But we're going to read most of chapter 2 to get the context. Titus 2, verse 1. But as for you, speaking to Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, older women are to be. Verse 4 through 5, younger women are to be. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent might be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 9, bond servants are to be. Verse 11, why? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, 
upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Before we get into the details, let me give you an overview of this text and of this sermon in one sentence. And seeing this sentence might be helpful to you. I provided it on the note sheet that you were handed as you entered the building today. Here's an overview of the text and of the sermon in one sentence. Men. In a culture of self-indulgence, live out the faith through godliness and good works based on the authority of God's word and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see here in Titus 2 that in the list of every kind of person Within the church, Paul addresses the men first, doesn't he? Men, that says something about our role. Verse 2, he addresses older men. Then verse 6, he addresses younger men. And then verse 7 and 8, he addresses Titus, either as one of those young men or as a model to the younger men. And it's not that the older men are supposed to be their things and the younger men aren't to worry about that. The list of characteristics articulates that older men and younger men are to live out the faith as Christian men, marked by two things, godliness and good works. Did you notice the emphasis throughout chapter 2 on godliness and good works? Next week, when we talk to the women, it will be godliness and good works. The following week, when we talk to the workers in the society, the bond servants, it will be godliness and good works. So Paul is encouraging the men of the church to live as Christian men, marked by godliness and good works, not Cretan men marked by laziness and gluttony. And by the way, who's to say? Who's to say what is the right and the wrong way for a man or a woman, older or younger, to live? Who's to say what's the right way for you to live? Well, Paul's instructions highlight The fact that the Christian faith and how we live out the faith is not based on 
personal opinion or even public opinion. It's not open, friends, for self-expression. The Christian faith and how we live the Christian faith is based on the objective authority of God's word. You're not living the Christian faith unless you're living according to the authority of God's word. Notice how Paul repeatedly emphasizes Titus's role in teaching the church. Look at verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's the beginning. Look at the end, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all what? Authority. And don't let anyone disregard you. And then in the middle, verse 7b and 8. Paul emphasizes that Titus, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent might be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This is not merely talking about Titus's everyday words or our everyday words. This is talking about Titus's ministry of teaching God's word and Paul is emphasizing that he should be teaching according to the objective authority of the scriptures. So he encourages them there in verse 7, teach with integrity. Integrity means wholly true without any error like the false teachers of chapter 1. He tells them to teach with dignity. The word dignity means teaching that is worthy of respect to be taken seriously because it's substantive. In verse 8, sound speech, healthy, reliable teaching that cannot be condemned. Reliable teaching that is beyond reproach because it is faithful to the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. And the goal, verse 8, is so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And notice the plural, corporate, us, the church. See, the goal of teaching and living is that when opponents bring accusations, and they will, that their charges have no credibility because the church is living according to the authority of God's word. We say we're the people of God and our lives are faithful to his scriptures. You know, I I find this to be very helpful because I regularly have conversations with my neighbors Um, in which they'll ask me things like, what do you think about, and then fill in the blank. And in these conversations, just in the past couple of weeks, I have been asked by two different neighbors, what do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about the Supreme Court's decision on Roe versus Wade? What do you think, do you really think there is an afterlife 
Each of these has been asked to me by neighbors over the past three weeks. Well, I usually tell them, listen, I'm happy to talk with you about this, but honestly, it really doesn't matter what I think. You have to understand something about me. I'm a Bible guy. What I believe about life and religion and any of these issues that you have brought up, what I believe is whatever God has said. My goal is to bring my opinion in line with God's opinion. God's revealed authoritative truth. The Bible is the Christian's authority for life, faith, and practice. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Christians, our faith must be lived out based on the authority of God's word if it is to display the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does is he gives us a sketch of what that looks like, especially in contrast to the self-indulgent Cretan culture. He sketches the picture of Christian men. Older men and younger men. Christian men whose lives are marked by godliness and good works. So as we look at this text this morning, I want to show you seven callings for Christian men in a Cretan culture. Seven callings for the Christian man in our culture. And this is not just for men. This is for all of us. What we learn here today is going to apply to everyone in the room. Man, woman, boy, girl. Just like next week when we talk to the ladies, it's going to apply to the men as well. But think about this. Ladies, as you listen to these callings that the gospel has for the men in the room, Ladies, pray for your brothers. Pray for us that we would live lives that are marked by the gospel. Children, pray for your dads and your uncles. Girls, these are the kinds of men that you should be looking for if you're looking for a future husband. Seven callings for the Christian men in a Cretan culture taken from specifically verse 2 and then 6 through 8. Look at verse 2 again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Calling number one. And I want you to notice that each one of these is what a man is to be. Calling number one, we are to be sober-minded. The meaning is to be clear-headed, specifically not addicted to alcohol. Uh, every time this word um, sober-minded is, is used, it always is in the context of 
of alcohol or not being drunk. And in this particular case, um, it's in it's parallel to verse 3. Look there next week. The older ladies are not slaves to much wine. So I think that this is very specifically a call to um, temperance, to not being drunk. Friends, isn't it true that men often abuse substances when life gets hard? Some men run to substances to escape stress and difficulty. But the Bible tells us that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, 18, do not get drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit of God. So rather than being intoxicated with alcohol, we ought to be intoxicated with the Spirit of God. Having our mind and our bodies controlled so that we think clear-headedly. That's a calling number one to men. Now, why would Paul pull that one out? Why would it be first? If, if you were making a list of the Christian men, would that be first on the list for you? When you're talking to the older ladies in our church, would you tell them, don't be slaves to much wine? If you lived on Crete, you would. Do you see the point? This is Christian men in a Cretan culture. Paul says, everybody around you, They live addicted to substances, not you. You live addicted to Jesus. You live filled with the Holy Spirit of God, thinking clear-headedly. Number two. Just keep going in verse two. Calling number two is to be dignified. The word dignified is to have a demeanor that is worthy of respect. Isn't that what you want for your father, your husband, your brother, your fellow church members? To live a life that is worthy of respect. I I can't help but think of my friend Charlie Reed, who was now with Jesus, a World War II veteran. He was humble. He was a tall man that every time he shook your hand, his hand just sort of engulfed yours. He was respectable. He was a gentleman's gentleman and a man's man. He had a life that was worthy of respect. But so often, our actions or our words, rather than bring respect, might bring shame. Paul says, Listen, let your life be worthy of respect so that you display the gospel and glory of Jesus Christ. Let your words be worthy of respect. And I put that there specifically because so often mine aren't. I hope my words are not marked by the kind of foolishness that Solomon wrote about. Proverbs 18, a fool's lips walk right into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are a snare to his soul. And men, isn't it so true that so often our words are not worthy of respect 
but our words bring shame. Be dignified, Paul says. That's going to put the gospel on display. Calling number three, be self-controlled. Look at verse two, self-controlled. This is a primary emphasis. Older men, be self-controlled. Look at verse six. Younger men are to be what? One thing. Isn't that interesting? He's got a long list for the old men. He's got a long list for the young. The whole section on what to do with young ladies. But young men, one thing. Be self-controlled. This idea of being self-controlled is so prominent in Titus that it is actually worth studying. Verse Chapter 1, verse 8. Elders are supposed to be marked by self-control. Chapter 2, verse 5. Young women are supposed to be marked by self-control. I just mentioned the young men in verse 6. Look at verse 12. The gospel trains us to live self-controlled lives in this present age. Five different times the gospel life is marked by self-control. Self-control. The meaning behind it is to have a right mind. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the Gospels, to have a right mind. Do you remember the uh, maniac of the uh, uh, Gerasenes, the guy who was who was possessed by a legion of demons and he was uncontrollable? No, and and, he, and you know people would put chains on him to try to control him, but nobody could. He just had this superhuman strength because of the demons that were inside of him. And when Jesus came to the Gerasenes. Jesus cast out the legion of demons. And then do you know what it says about him? They found him dressed and, quote, in his right mind. It's the same word. He was now in control of himself. No longer possessed by these demons, he was able to think correctly. And self-control isn't so primarily about what you do as it starts. Yes, it's about what you do, but it starts in your thinking. Right thinking results in right actions. Being in control of your appetites and your actions. So why is self-control the only attribute? Look there, urged. Verse 6, urge the young men on Crete. Can you just kind of picture this culture of prolific liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons? Paul says, urge these Christian young men to be men of self Control, Friends, is youth not the season when we feel our passions most intensely and at the same time are most vulnerable to temptation? Proverbs chapter 7, 8, and 9, you should read it this afternoon, deals with this head on. Solomon knew the temptations of sin. And so in Proverbs chapter 7, sin is portrayed as a beautiful temptress. And 
the story is told of this beautiful temptress calling out to a young man saying, come, I have delights. She says, quote, come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. And with much seductive speech, she persuades him. And with her smooth talk, she compels him. And all at once, he follows her. Just like an ox going to the slaughter, like a bird rushing into a snare, he doesn't know that it will cost him his life. Proverbs chapter 8. Wisdom is also portrayed as a beautiful woman calling to that same young man. In Proverbs 8, verse 32, Solomon says, O sons, listen to me. Pardon me, wisdom says, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, wisdom says, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. And all who hate me Love death. Wisdom is embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we find Christ, he is full of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And when we follow Jesus Christ, we follow Jesus into the path of blessing and obedience. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's because all men, young, old, doesn't matter. We all struggle with our passions, don't we, guys? We have passions raging inside of us that often come out as anger. Sometimes our passions will drive us to slothfulness and laziness, sometimes to alcohol or substances. We all deal with the temptations for lust and pornography. Even something as silly and seemingly harmless as video games becomes an addiction that ends up causing sin. And so, Paul says the gospel life calls you to a life of self-control. Self-control. A self-controlled man is one whose mind is fixed and his life is controlled by the gospel of Jesus Christ rather than the appetites of his flesh. Paul, on another occasion, said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for your flesh to fulfill its lusts. Be self-controlled, men. Calling number four. Continuing in verse two, you'll notice that the next three 
are all categorized under the heading of sound in, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. What does it look like to be a Christian man in a self-indulgent culture? It looks like being sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Now, we've talked before about the word sound means to be healthy or reliable or solid. So to be sound in faith is to be strong in the faith. Men, are you strong in the faith? Are you faithful to God so that you're not led away by false teaching or lured away by the temptations of your flesh? Are you solid in the faith so that you can lead your families to follow Jesus as well? Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says this, As you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophies or traditions or anything that's not according to Christ. There on Crete were false teachers that were easily leading whole families away from the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul says to Titus, teach the authoritative, authentic gospel of Jesus Christ and call the men to be solid, faithful to God so that they can lead their families. Sir, is that you? Calling number five. Not just be faithful to God, but be loving to others. Do you see that? Sound in love. Now listen, men are often portrayed as tough and hard. Christian men? Christian men are to be solid in love. That doesn't mean soft and wimpy. But the kind of love here, that that most famous agape love, the the kind of love here is others-minded, sacrificial service. You talk about something that requires toughness? That required Jesus to have to have rock solid tenacity to set his face like a, a flint to go to, to the cross to sacrifice himself to save our sorry souls. You want to talk about a man's man? That's love right there. Be solid, sound, in love. Men, we often struggle with self-centeredness rather than others-mindedness, don't we? I know I struggle with irritability and anger. Sometimes I just want to be left alone. No, the gospel calls us to love other people. Christian men are called to serve others because Jesus served us. Be sound in love. Calling number six, just like we're to be sound in faith and in love, we see the the third member of the trio of Christian virtues, hope. 
We are to be sound in steadfastness. Steadfastness is to persevere or endure because of something good that is coming. The only reason to persevere or, or endure something difficult is to get to the end, something much better. And so we are sound, solid in steadfastness, the ability to persevere. Christian men are called to persevere in the faith, endure suffering for the gospel, even in the midst of a society that rejects Jesus Christ that is going in the opposite direction. Man, persevere because your endurance shows that Jesus is worthy of your life. And then finally, calling number six, uh, calling number seven. So we've looked at older men, younger men. Younger men come up under that self-control that was second on the list for older men. And now he looks directly at Titus himself and look there in verse seven. Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Now, before you say, well, that means that Titus is supposed to be the only one who's uh, passionate and marked by good works. <laughs> no, no, no. He's supposed to be a model. <laughs> Why? So that we will follow. So that everybody, all the, especially the younger men of, of whom Titus is probably one, don't know that for sure. Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works for the younger men, the older men, all of the people in the church. Again, good works is an emphasis of this letter. Good works is a big deal to the Apostle Paul because it was a big deal to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel calls Christians to good works. The emphasis is on works. The gospel is not just about confession. It's not just about character. The gospel must be lived out in works. And I'm afraid we good reformed folks are quite content with our correct confession and our beautiful Christ-like character. And we sit on the benches and leave everyone else to do the good works. The gospel calls us and men puts it right on us. May our lives be marked by good works six times in this very short letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. The false teachers are characterized as those who are unfit for any good works. Chapter 2, verse 7. Titus is to be a model of good works. Chapter 2, verse 14. God gave his son, look, to purify a people who are zealous of good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. The church is to be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. Those who believe in God are to devote themselves to good works. Chapter 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to one more time. It's an emphasis. 
of the letter from Paul to Titus. Is it an emphasis of your life, sir? Christianity is lived out by works that are rooted in and a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. James chapter 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Just like the body, apart from the spirit of dead, uh, is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. John said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Listen, men, this is our calling. This is the authority of God's word. The gospel of Christ calls us to this. Are you sober-minded? Are you dignified? Are you self-controlled? Are you sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness? Are you marked by good works. John Bunyan said about godliness, and I thank Mindy for this, godliness is a wonderful thing. It it commands reverence, and in its presence, even those who are ungodly are humbled. Godliness gives a majesty that cannot be explained. Enemies are afraid of people who are godly, even while they rage against these holy ones, trying to suppress them. The persons they oppose, if you consider them realistically from a human perspective, are pretty insignificant, not much more than a dead dog or a flea. But they're clothed with godliness. The image and presence of God is upon them. This frightens the beast of this world. This lower world's greatest ornament and beauty, besides God and his wonders, are the people who spangle and shine with godliness. If we were to leave this sermon here, I would be in great despair. Because though I want my my life to be marked by all of these things, left to myself, the truth is it isn't. And that's the good news. God does not leave us to ourself. God does not leave us to our own self-determination and discipline to display the gospel to the Cretans around us. This same letter tells us that the gospel empowers us to display this gospel. So my question as we close this sermon is how does the gospel empower men to live this way?
Very briefly, I want to suggest four things that the gospel gives us so that we can live the way Paul calls for in these seven callings of a gospel life. First of all, the gospel gives us the promise of God. Friends, here's the good news. Making you look this way, sober-minded, self-controlled, dignified, solid in faith, love, and perseverance, and marked by good works, making you look like Jesus is God's job. He who began a good work in you will complete it. But it won't be done until you get to heaven. You can rest assured. But it will be completed. That's what Logan told us about earlier. That everything from the beginning to the end of salvation, from foreknowledge all the way through glorification, all of it is God making us into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel gives us the promise of God. It's not up to us. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, which we will get to three weeks from today. Come back. Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us that we can live this way because the grace of God has brought salvation. We're secure according to grace, not works. Grace frees us to go out and work. We don't work to be saved. We work because we are. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then what does it say? Look there in verse 12. The same grace that brings salvation trains us to live these kinds of ways, including self-control. Praise God. The gospel gives us the promise of God. This is God's work to do in us. And we respond to it in repentance and faith, just like we did when we first came to Christ. It's a daily. Number two, the gospel gives us the pattern of Christ. So what does this life look like? Just look at Jesus. I love what Alan said earlier. We don't have to wonder what God is like. We know definitively. Look at Jesus. Your God has a name. It's Jesus. The gospel is this, that Jesus lived the life of obedience that we could never live. He was the perfect man. He was the Christ in a very Cretan culture. Jesus was sober-minded. His, his opponents looked at him and said, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus wasn't entering into their bondage and addiction. Jesus was delivering them from it. Jesus was dignified. Oh, listen, Jesus' life and teaching was worthy of respect so much that the historical record in the gospel says that when he came back to his hometown where he grew up, that when the people saw how he lived and heard how he talked, they were, quote, in awe. And they said, 
Who is this guy? Where did he come from? Where did he get this teaching? Jesus was worthy of respect. Jesus was self-controlled. Listen, do you want to have your mind blown? Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. Are you ready? Yet without sin. Jesus was faithful to God. Jesus, on one occasion when his disciples were afraid that he hadn't eaten that day, he said, my food is to do the will of my father. All the way to the end when he was kneeling in prayer, sweating great drops of blood, looking into the cup of the wrath of God and not wanting to drink it in his human flesh, he said, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus was faithful. He was solid in faith. Jesus loved others. Oh, he loved all kinds of people. Listen, he welcomed the children that annoyed his disciples. He had compassion on the people that would um, repulse us. He wept over those who he knew would reject him. Jesus was steadfast in hope. Hebrews 12 tells us to look to Jesus. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He thought little of what was about to happen to him because he wanted to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus is the great steadfast Jesus was a model of good works. Acts chapter 10, Peter's simple testimony of Jesus. You ready? Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. When God is with you and me, we will go about doing good too. The gospel gives us the pattern of Christ. But it doesn't call us to follow Jesus in our own power. The gospel calls us to believe that Jesus is the perfect man who satisfies the requirements of God's law and secures God's blessing for us. The gospel calls us to follow Jesus into a life of obedience. By putting off our old self, repentance, and putting on our new self that is created in the image of Christ, faith. And the gospel does not leave us to follow Jesus in the power of our own self-determination. That's the fourth thing, pardon me, the third thing that the gospel gives us. The gospel gives us the power of the Spirit. Not just the promise of God or the pattern of Christ, but the gospel, friends, gives us the power. The superhuman, totally other dimension, not human, deity, spirit of God. Power. You're going to have to read John 14, 15, and 16 later, but in chapter 14 and 16, 
Jesus promises that when he leaves, he says, it's okay. I'm going to send you a helper. My spirit is going to dwell inside of you. And then he describes what that looks like. What does it look like to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? John chapter 15. It looks like, quote, abide in me and I in you. Just like the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you be any of these things on this list unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that is of sober mind, self-controlled, dignified, solid in faith, love, and hope. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the gospel life. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. The gospel gives us the promise of God, the pattern of Christ, the power of the Spirit, and one last thing that cannot be neglected. The partnership of the church. Ecclesiastes is correct. Two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, the other will help him up. But woe to the man who's alone when he falls. Paul Tripp said, an isolated, independent, separated, and self-hiding Christian life is alien to the Christianity of the New Testament. Biblical Christianity is thoroughly and foundationally relational. No one, can live outside of the essential ministries of the body of Christ and remain spiritually healthy. No one is so spiritually mature that he is free from the need for the comfort, the warnings, the encouragement, the rebuke, the instruction and insights of others. Everyone needs partners in struggles. Everyone needs to be helped to see what they cannot see about themselves on their own. The gospel brings us into a new community. And here's the good news. Our sanctification is a community project. It's part of the good graces of God to us. Christian men. The gospel calls us to lives marked by godliness and good works. May God give us the grace to live as Christians in the midst of our Cretan culture. Let's pray together about that.
God, I thank you for Jesus. God became man and dwelled among us and was full of grace and truth. I thank you that his life saved ours. His death delivered ours. His resurrection ensures ours. Now I pray that that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would be displayed by everyone in the room, particularly the men, as we seek to live our lives in honor of the one who's worthy. May we display the gospel and glory of Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. And God, I pray that you would make disciples of Jesus even through our witness for his glory, for their good, and for our joy. We pray in his name.